Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the Judgment Call podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Really happy to be here and appreciate the invitation. Hey, absolutely. You know, um, you've been with Amazon Web Services, that part, that's the cloud part of Amazon. You've been with them seemingly since day one. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your story and how you came to join Amazon in the first place. Sure. And so back before I joined Amazon, I had already been working with very early web services. I had spent some time at Microsoft. I was part of the Visual Basic team. Then I was part of the Visual Studio.net team. And I got to work with some really early web services. I was working with things like um, UDDI and SOAP and XML and XSLT, uh, all very interesting but very complex technologies. And the challenge back then was, as technologists, you could look at the these web services and say, this is really cool because it's computer-to-computer -computer connection across the internet. As technologists, we'd look at that and say, yeah, that's super awesome. We love that. But then you'd show it to a business person and they're like, I don't understand what what's the excitement about. Like, you're just like, nothing amazing is happening here. And I, I left Microsoft to do some web services consulting. And still, I, it was very obvious with the companies I worked with. This is way back in 2000 or so. This lack of actual tangible applications for web services was still just so obvious. And then one lucky day, I saw the very, very first service that Amazon published. This was actually a beta. And uh, this was for a, a, a service that's had a couple names over the years, but it, at that point, it gave developers access to the Amazon product catalog. I happened upon that service like minutes after it was launched in beta. I saw it, I thought, this is pretty cool. Downloaded it, started using it, sent Amazon some feedback, and through a lot of really just lucky breaks, I ended up working on part of the team that, that actually built that service. Yeah, a lot of people describe you these days as the main evangelist for Amazon Web Services. Is that true? Uh, oh, I've, I've been doing it the longest, and I, I do have the title of chief evangelist uh, by, by tenure, and I guess by, I don't know, by influence, but I, I certainly do my best to do what I've always done, which is uh, absorb the technology, understand it, and then explain it to a wide audience. Well, you've absolutely been successful, right? So the, the Amazon cloud has really taken off. And uh, I, I discovered it in 2006, um, really early on as well. And there were the initial services like S3, which is kind of a file system distributed in the cloud. And then there was um, the way you could spin up um, instances. And I think this was a VMware product initially. And then Amazon put some layers on top of it. When you, when you look back into the early days, it... My personal um, impression is there was a lot of innovation, but no, nobody really knew about it. Nobody really wanted to use it. There were only a few startups who didn't have the time and didn't have the money to, to afford their own server. So they looked at Amazon. And then the picture changed. I feel, uh, from my point of view, for especially the last five years, innovation has slowed down, but way more customers have signed up. And we, we know there's some massive customers now in the Amazon cloud. What is your personal impression of that the last 15 years? Well, it's been an incredible, unique part of my career and nothing I would have ever dreamed of that I get to participate in something just so amazing and so life-changing personally, but more for the industry and for the customers. I would totally disagree that innovation has actually slowed down. I think that we're just creating new services and new instance types and we're the pace of launches is, I think, faster than ever. At the hardware side, we're going in at a very, very fundamental level we've done things like built the nitro system where we control 
we, we've got our own chips and our own hardware that control security and the boot up process that control low level networking, disk IO. We've got the, the Graviton chips. We're now at the Graviton 2 level. We've got chips for uh, machine learning training, machine learning inferencing. We're working with 5G, with wavelength zones, uh, lots of really amazing things with machine learning. So I, I think the innovation is, is still there and, and still happening really quickly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful to hear. When, when, when I, when that's, that's one side, pro, side um, learning that I have from my time with the cloud is that it seems to be whenever you connect with the cloud, you end up being in Virginia, right? You're in Ashburn or you're in Randon. You know, most of the, the core cloud experience is, is really within a 20-mile radius of Washington, D.C. Why is that? Well, that was the original AWS region. The, the first region that we opened up was the what's now called U.S. East 1 in Northern Virginia. But we very quickly followed that up with additional regions. I, I think the next one we launched was in Dublin, and we, we then went to Singapore and Japan. I don't have the order precise here because it, it happens so quickly. Yeah. But we now have 25 regions all around the world, and customers get to pick and choose. So one, one really important aspect of AWS has always been that customers choose the region, and they decide exactly where their data is stored and where it's processed. And we, we've always been, I, I think, very, very clear on once you choose a region, that, that's where the action happens. And data only moves between regions if you, as the customer, decide to actually initiate that yourself. Yeah. I found it, I found it amazing that when you opened up, you you had the audacity to put the customer data in a file system like S3, right? Where for you guys, you had some couple of years experience with that, using it internally on for Amazon products um, in the late '90s, I guess when it started. But it needs some guts to tell everyone around there, why don't you put your files here? And we promise you, we probably won't lose it. There's, I understand there's a bit of a service guarantee, so there's a legal way out. But still, it's, it would have been, let's put it this way, extremely problematic if you would have lost 1% of the files. How did that feel in the early days? Well, it, it was something really that we, we knew that if you advertise something as, as simply as storage for the internet, that it has to live up to that promise. You, you have to make something that has that incredible degree of availability and durability. Um, I, I know that from the very, very beginning, we, we actually shared that S9 was designed to deliver what we say 11 nines of durability. So 99.99 and a, ho a whole bunch more nines. And th this isn't just kind of a hope or, or a wish. Th this is supported by a detailed understanding of the system, of the operational characteristics, of the, the failure rates and failure modes of all the components, the, the ways that S3 checks for data internally for checking for integrity, the, the way it um, is continuously replicating and re-replicating. And by, by, doing, by, by literally doing the math, we were able to offer a system with that level of durability. Yeah, I find that stunning. And it's, it's something that Google for the longest time hadn't done, right? So you guys open up 2005, 2006, maybe a little earlier. But I think the Google Cloud only came along much later and the google file system that that was the original um springboard for a lot of their services like the google main search index it i feel it was 2015 it was still not fully opened up for external usage so us were like 10 years at least ahead of, of global technology 
we got a, a, a nice head start and I, I think, you know, we listened to customers very, very quickly and what we put out the service and it was very, very aptly named the simple storage service. We, we picked the absolute minimum set of fun of internal functionality and visible APIs offered that to developers and said, here it is. And here's what it is. And here's what it does. And we invite you to use it. Developers looked at, looked at that very quickly and said, I get this. I, I see why this is valuable to me. And even better, they saw that we had things like command line tools and SDKs and then other tools quickly built by by third parties that all started adding value into this whole S3 ecosystem. And the, the data started just flooding in. I, I don't remember the exact dates when we started making announcements of the, the numbers of billions of objects, but we, we, we did that for quite some time and said, so, okay, we're at 10, 50, 100 billion objects. And we, we actually stopped doing it for a bit because the, the numbers got beyond astronomical. Um, earlier this year, at, as part of Pi Week, we actually said we were at well over 100 trillion objects, which is, that's a number that, like, how, how do you put that into real world terms? It's, it's just so unimaginable, that number. Well, well we kind of know how big it is when it goes down, right? It's rare, but it happens. So that I think like two years ago, it went down for a day. And 50% of the internet is down. If S3, just one service out of what you guys do is down, and everything stopped because most people serve their images or static files out of S3 directly to the end user. So we realized that most of the websites were partly broken. Yeah, so that was somewhat more than two years ago. I, I don't remember the details. I, I, I know we brought things back to life very, very quickly. But again, we, we do have S3 running out of multiple regions. There's, there's a lot of redundancy built into S3. And yeah, yes, it, it did indicate that there are a lot of different ways that people are putting S3 to use. Now, one of the, the things that we we're relentless about at AWS is we do build for this high, high degree of availability and durability, but we do know that things are sometimes going to, to break in a, in a new, new way. If that ever happens, we, we have this internal model where first we bring things back online, we, we get our customers back up and running. But then we take apart the entire system. We look at log files. We, we look at the entire sequence of events that led to this actual customer visible issue. And we always say, let's, let's make sure that we, we fully understand the, this cascading series of, of events and issues. And then let's, let's improve the system, whatever, whatever it is. So that can never, ever, ever happen again. And the, the iterated effect of this process over years and years that the system just continues to get better and better. Yeah, I feel you, you're really onto something there. It's this transparency of engineering that you really pioneered. I think a lot of other people later on copied it and said, we have a dashboard and you have a status, right? You guys, I feel, pioneered this at least on a, on a big scale. Is that culture something, and it's rare for engineering organizations, right? Most engineering organizations, they are kind of hidden away. And I understand you obviously are different, but compared to the rest of Amazon, they're hidden away. And they, they really don't want to talk much to the outside departments. How did you pull this off? Is it Werner Vogel's thing? Is that Jeff Bezos? How did that happen that it's so transparent? You know, it's been part of the culture since it, as, as long as I've been part of the organization. And it's... We internally we have this model we call it correction of errors, and every time things break in any way, we 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 create this document called a COE document. And the interesting thing is that these documents become legend within the engineering community over time, to the to the point where each of these documents is numbered. And if, if you are ever in a, a a deep tech discussion with our our senior and our principal engineers, they they will 
recite some of the kind of the legendary COEs by number. And they'll say, hey, do you remember 257? They're like, oh, yeah, that was that was one amazing consequence of this aspect of design. Or they might go into a design review and they'll they'll be designing, they'll be reviewing a design to make sure it's scalable and durable and available. And then one of the principal engineers might say, you need to go look at COE 623 because we learned some really imp important lessons about your particular architecture. So th this we have this incredible repertoire of, I want to say almost how not to do things that's, that's been built up over 20 plus years. Yeah. Well, well, well when I look at, say, the, the core of American engineering, so to speak, right? It doesn't have to be an American who works there, but it's this, this value of, of you know, big projects um, done with this pioneering spirit. Like, I think of it as the, the Golden Gate Bridge, for instance, right? Maybe it's not a perfect example, but it's something that was daring, that was, that was out there, it was big, it was a monument, and it has never been done before. And we, we I feel, while we have, a lot, to an extent, a good amount of pioneering spirit in America, we don't have a lot of engineers who, who, who are allowed or are willing or are capable of this pioneering spirit to put it into practice. And I feel this is what happened with the cloud services and especially with AWS, is that we have this, this amazing idea of really difficult engineering and you guys pulled it up, right? You, you were the first to deliver the cloud service that anyone could use and you could use it for a few dollars a month, right? It was very equal access. Exactly. And literally everyone on the planet could access it. There were no barriers to entry. Exactly. And you brought up the, the very beginning of EC2. So EC2 is almost 15 years old. I think it'll be August when we are officially 15 years old. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that you thought it was VMware, but actually it was not. We, we used a virtualization environment called Zen in the, for, to get EC2 up and running. And yeah. I do remember presenting about EC2 in the early days. And even though there was a lot of amazing engineering inside, as, as you picked up on, a lot of people looked at it and really dismissed it. They'd look and say, you know, th this just sounds like a couple racks of hardware. Or they'd say, you know, this is nothing really special. You, you probably had some extra hardware left over from the last holiday season. So you're just giving customers access to it. And we didn't really talk about the special magic inside of EC2 for a really, really long time. We, we just simply said the, the customers care about the fact that they can make an API call or click a button and they can launch instances on demand if they need one, 10, 100, 1,000. Uh, we've got customers running hundreds of thousands of instances. We're going to make all this infrastructure to, to make that easy and reliable and cost effective. That's where we really put all the, the energy into. Yeah. And well, you succeeded pretty quickly. I felt like in just a few years, and I, I saw it from a user base. First, it was just the instances, and you could do this pretty much anywhere. Like it, it kind of seemed like a normal uh, normal server that you would get somewhere else. But then you had the backup system, you had the machine images, you had the EBS storages, the backup of the EBS storages. So what what, it, what happened is you could you could scale it out because you could just you know package whatever you have, and then you can launch a hundred servers, but in a heartbeat. Um, anywhere else, you would have to boot it up from the ground, reinstall software. So you you really came out. Of, of a solution that kind of looked like just slightly better than any other server I could buy from any other host. It, and it went into just a few years into a solution that for the longest time, nobody was able to replicate. And I still, I feel, given, given the, 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 the major, maturity of, of uh, tools that you have, even others like IBM and Google, and even Google surprisingly has trouble replicating that. Well, you have to really strive for simplicity. And I, I think one of the, the kind of interesting advantages that we had at Amazon was that we one of our first leadership principles, actually the very first leadership principle that we have is, 
is customer obsession. And that, that means that we're, we're all, whenever we build something, we're, we're not simply inventing really awesome things in our R&D lab and then handing them off to marketing to try to sell. We're, we're always, the, the methodology is somewhat famous at this point. We call it start from the customer and work backward. So we, we always begin by writing a document called a, a PRFAQ, a combination of a press release and a frequently asked questions list. We try really hard to, to summarize what might be a very complex, very rich service. We have to summarize that in the page and a half of text that you get in a press release. So the, and, but we're, we're doing this so that the, with the thinking that the first thing a customer might see is this press release. And even if they don't literally see a press release, the, what we find is this, this actual activity of having a, an idea for something that might be very sophisticated, very complex, the, the work that you have to do to refine that to the point where you can describe it incredibly well with just with simplicity and clarity and accuracy in a press release, we put an unbelievable large amount of energy into doing that. that when, when you hear, oh, you write a press release, that doesn't mean you just set aside an afternoon and just whip one out on your, your laptop. The, the press release is this distilled thinking of how do we best solve a set of customer problems? And getting to that point of clarity, getting to the point where we understand the problem really well and we can describe what we'd like to do to solve it in that press release is where a lot of that initial energy goes. I think it's a really good strategy and I've been trying that for one of my startups and it kind of worked well. I mean, I did it on a much smaller scale. You guys have one very different level of experience. One thing I feel that you need to, where you need that approach is, is for instance, and that's very specific, but that's my personal experience in certain API. Um, the API language is incredibly technical. And I think for no reason, the API language is often more like, like SQL, right? It's very simple and almost human-like, but, but, but for AWS, it gets incredibly complicated with, with queries that nobody really understands, besides a few developers, really highly technical, highly abstract. They make a lot of sense, but it's really difficult to get to that level and understand it. It, it truly is. But, but I, I do think that, that that early focus and the continued focus on customer obsession is, is why we succeeded. When, when customers looked at this, it, it didn't look, it, maybe it was surprising, but then they looked a little bit deeper and they said, well, this is, this is Linux inside. And I, I, know how to, I, I know how to administer a Linux system. I now know how to SSH to a Linux system. I know how to install packages. There was a lot of familiar aspects too that, that resonated with customers and potential customers where they said, okay, yes, I'm stepping into a new world, but I'm, I'm able to take a lot of skills into that new world that, that I've learned in, in the prior world. Yeah. Well, one thing that, that I always found mesmerizing, and I don't know if that's still true, but when you, when you, you get to use as an initial user um, AWS services, you don't really have access to a human support. And it's, it's, it's not easy to, to scale into that level of complexity. I mean, if you have experience, it gets easier, but it's still, you guys build more and more stuff. So it's not easy. There's good documentation, excellent documentation, but there is no free support. There's a couple of forums and you can post something, but basically on your own, you can pay for service, right? And that's fair enough. Um, but I always felt like this is a very interesting approach that very few few companies do out there. They do have a level of support, but again, often get overwhelmed and then you just, you just don't deliver anything, right? These emails never get answered. You guys had a very 
almost feel it, it felt a little arrogant to me right and not necessarily is a bad thing but you guys felt like okay we, we've laid it all out and if you don't get it you're stupid and then you have to pay for it and you pay me 100 bucks a month or whatever the support package is worth it, but probably that's not what you guys meant so the term that we like to use internally is self-service platforms where where the, the the way to scale isn't always by adding more people into your organization. It's by making the, the systems as as obvious and as usable as possible, by making that documentation accessible and readable, making sure that you, you do have a good sample code, that you do have a community around you to support. And like in the in the early days of AWS, one of the places that I would hang out a lot was the the AWS forums and the, the forums have been a, a little bit superseded by some more modern kind of communities. Like I like to hang out on the AWS subreddit where there's a lot of really knowledgeable, really helpful folks. And the, the interesting thing is the, the premise of support, I think sometimes is that the vendor knows everything about the product, but in the, a very interesting phenomenon happens is that the customers in a sense know more than the vendor because we, yeah, yes, we engineer it from the ground up and we, we, we build it for, and we, we run it. The customers are the ones that are actively making use of the, all the different functions and calling the APIs and, and often are using different services in conjunction with each other. If you were to look at one of our teams, you'll, you'll find that the, within the S3 team, there's a lot of sub teams. Within the EC2 team, it's the same way. But each of these teams is is really focused on their individual mission. If you ask any, any member of the S3 team, what, you, what, what do you do? They will tell you how their work contributes to the success of S3. If, if you ask them about other services that we offer, they might have some peripheral knowledge of what it is and what it's about, but they probably can't say, well, if you wanna combine S3 and Redshift or S3 and, um, I don't know, Lambda, let's say. Well, those, those actually work together nicely. It's maybe not a great example. But, yeah. but in general, the teams know as much as possible about their offering. And they just don't have the, 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 the kind of the vantage point necessarily to, to look at how their work plays out into the bigger picture. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, if you, if you use the self-service, it scales way better. I, I fully understand that. When you, when you look at the growth right now, where do you see the biggest growth spurts? And you just mentioned earlier, there is still a lot of innovation, maybe not as visible to myself. I feel like there's a lot of higher value added services. So there's like Redis clusters, for instance, or obviously Lambda, the serverless computing part seems to scale a lot. Where's the, the biggest in terms of usage, but also in terms of excitement right now? Um, so I don't keep track of the individual business units and their their growth rates. I mean, the, the fundamentals are still there. They're, the, the use of S3 and EC2 continues to grow and we, the, the use cases continue to expand. Um, you, you'll see that we, 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 in addition to simply like launching new, new regions all over the world, and we've been adding to that collection very steadily, we've been doing things like adding this new model we call local zones, where with, with local zones, we want to get compute power closer and closer to our users. And so the combination of the, the local zones that are really can think of those as extensions of existing regions. And we, we just announced just uh, yesterday that we, we've got local zones in, in three additional cities. We're also working with, uh, with 5G providers in the US and in other parts of the world to, to put compute and storage in, 
in the telecom centers of the 5G providers. So, so getting the, the, going back to the fundamentals, right? Just getting compute, just getting storage closer and closer to, to the users to enable new and, and different kinds of applications. Yeah. One thing that I, I always feel like has gotten out of touch a little is some of the, the pricing model for Amazon. The way I love it is obviously that it starts, you, you, you go on a per instance hour or you just pay for a usage generally, which is awesome, right? This, this is something people, people love and I think nobody will ever say no to that. And there's no minimums ever. But on, on the other hand, when I see like traffic charges, which is like a thousand times more expensive than in lots of other places, or I see a computing, pure computing, how much can I do with my CPU, which is 10 times more expensive than I go to another host. Is that something that where you guys feel you have to be so expensive because you can, or on the other hand, that's because it's built into the model, it's built into the cake of you only pay for what you use. Why is something so extremely expensive and others are very competitive within AWS? Well, I, I actually would, would disagree that we're, we're more expensive than, than options. I'll, although I, I will say that I personally don't spend any time looking at, at other ways to obtain these resources. The, the model that we use internally is that we, we try really hard to make sure that the costs in each dimension of usage, the, the, that the, the prices are a direct proportion of, of costs. And we, we call it a, a cost following model. And we, we do this so that regardless of the way that our customers choose to use the service, that, that they're paying their fair share of the, of the consumption. So, and th this actually was, was one of the most interesting decision points uh, in the very, before we even launched S3, there, there were, there was no pay as you go example that we could look to. And there, there were questions of like, do you charge by, by the month for uh, just a fixed amount of storage? Do you have large increments? Do you, there were, do you have various kinds of plans at various scales? And after a lot of discussion with customers, after a lot of analysis of the business, we said, we're, we're going to break it down into several different dimensions. And we're going to, to have our prices set as, as effectively take the, take our costs to do storage, to do data transfer, to, to respond to API calls. We're going to take the, those fundamental costs and we're going to really break those out and then add a, add a bit of a margin on top, but then set each of those different pricing dimensions accordingly for our customers. Um, we do tend to reduce prices. We, we've had somewhere close to 100 price reductions over the years, and those represent the th things like Moore's Law, where semiconductors continue to get more powerful and less expensive. They represent economies of scale on our side. And also, we, we tend to learn how to run the services more more efficiently over time. Yeah, I think in general you 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 you're correct. I think the model is appealing. But think about traffic charges. Um, so you get a lot of servers that you just bare hardware. It's you get twenty terabyte, right? Getting twenty terabyte out of S three or EC two is I think what is one thousand eight hundred dollars. And the same is you know when you that, that's an incredible amount, and it's um, just for one particular server, right? And uh, this, I think you see now competitors like Hot Wasabi who basically do an S3 clone and say, oh, you don't have any traffic charges. Yes, there's certain models that they exclude that you can't use for them. So basically traffic is included. So your bill drops from $2,000 almost, if you have that much traffic, to zero. And that's pretty crazy, right? And that's why I feel this, I mean, there's certainly other use cases where the difference is not as stark, but if you have a highly trafficked website, you pay dearly, it's unaffordable. 
in, in, in Amazon and then other hosts, they give it to you for free. That's quite stunning, right? That's maybe Moore's law because they seem to have no costs with it. So, so I, I don't understand the business models of the other providers, but, but I, I would have to imagine and, and speculate a bit that, that if every one of their customers was to max out their service in that particular dimension, that, that their model wouldn't, wouldn't actually play out to, to their benefit. The, the, there's, there's averages and expectations in a model like that, where if you say you can have up to this much bandwidth, well, that's wonderful, but the expectation is that the average customer is going to consume considerably less. And what, what I've heard from our customers is that they, they do understand that, that there is a cost for bandwidth at scale, but, but then they, they need the, the predictability and they need to know that if they were to actually consume all the available bandwidth, that they don't, they don't face a cap, they don't suddenly get a, a different, enter into a different charging level. And they, there's, now I don't understand at the, the deep technical level how you might configure connectivity, but there, there's different kinds of peering arrangements. There, there's certainly different quality levels that you can aspire to as you do this. We're doing this at the, the quality level that, that our customers uh, expect to run their, their most business critical applications. Yeah, I think we all remember the first um, peering agreement from Google, right? <laughs> you would expect, because they had downloaded all the websites, right? There would be a huge cost factor involved. And basically, they got all the traffic for like a few thousand dollars. And it was an incredible amount of traffic because they downloaded everything to the data center, which is the traffic you give away for free as well, right? So that is not used much. So these pipes are basically empty and you get it for really cheap, but the other way um, is being charged. But that's, you know, every cloud has their own idea about how to charge for this based on their own peering agreements. Yeah, and, and um, one thing I'd say is we, we do always listen to our customers. And if, if you know, as, as we get feedback from customers about, okay, well, this part of AWS, we're, we're happy with the pricing, this part we sure wish you could do better. We we, we always we we listen we listen to that and we, we do our best to respond accordingly. Yeah. Um, one thing that you guys really excel at is enabling startups, and that's that's an, an amazing boost that you deliver to the startup economy, especially here in Silicon Valley. And you basically now you even have this particular prog program that gives us credits. I didn't even know about it until like two years ago. I don't know how old it is. Maybe you can tell us a little more about that role of startups in your ecosystem. Sure. So I, I have a lot of affection for startups, having having worked in multiple different startups. And the, the one thing I remember from my, my pre-Amazon experience, I, I, I used to consult for different startups. And what would often happen is that I would get in pretty early on, often when they were, before they had been fully funded, they're kind of limping along on having just a, a couple servers and some really bare bones infrastructure. At a certain point, they would get funded. And the first thing that they would do after getting funded would be really, they, they'd call their, their Sun Microsystems salesperson and say, we've got all this money and we need to give a third of it to you so we can have a whole bunch of Sun servers in our, in our data center. Yeah. And I, I, this, this was kind of around the, the 2000, 2001 era where there's, there's tons of startups, there's all this demand for for Sun servers. And then it would take months for this hardware to show up. Sometimes the startup would be constrained in their growth because they couldn't get their servers fast enough. Sometimes there'd be more servers than, than customers and they, they'd have the surplus. And so it, the, this idea of being able to use EC2 and to get exactly as much compute power as you need when you need it. And if you get this incredibly awesome burst of traffic because you are 
um, well, back in the old days, we say back if you were slash dotted, now you're, you're reddited or you're hacker news or your CNN. When you get that huge burst of traffic, that might be your one big opportunity to get in front of this gigantic audience and to get yourself to that next level of, of uh, success. So being able to say, architect your system properly for so you're auto scaled. And then if you get that massive traffic surge, you're, you're all set to handle it. But then when it goes away, you can you can auto scale back down. Startups get that they, they always aspire to greatness, but they have to actually be practical and have the infrastructure they can afford. So so startups were, were really one of the first the, the first targets. And, and I, I just love to see all these just really early startups succeed when we worked with um, Going way back, companies like um, Gigavox Media and Smugmug and Animoto, uh, lots of developers of uh, Facebook apps and Facebook add-ins in, in the early days. They understood all too well the, this idea of, of going viral way back then, going back 10, 12, almost 15 years at this point. They understood that you put something out there in front of the public, it can catch people's eye, and before you know it, you're your need for compute power just is going to far exceed anything you could plan for or, or, or pay for uh, up front. So that, that appeal was, was just, was, was right there from the very beginning. Yeah. I think what, what obviously we, we all watched the TV show, um, Silicon Valley and I don't, they, they, it quips every other episode about how much money goes to Jeff Bezos because that was the biggest bill. And I think this is true for all startups, right? So it's the, the biggest bill besides salaries is generally, and the lawyers for the VCs, is generally Amazon. And But we all have that problem, right? So when we want to build something. And um, I don't always hear that from our customers. I, I often hear, okay. especially our, our, I, I see a lot of customers that are doing serverless applications. And a lot of serverless customers tell me that their, their serverless bill is about equal to their coffee bill. Oh yeah, the serverless is awesome, right? I, I wanted to get the serverless in a second, uh, but that's really interesting to say that serverless is, is a very different idea. But uh, generally, you you run this part of instances, and say it costs a few thousand dollars a month. Um, whatever you you you're ready to invest. What I wanted to get at is, but what you do now is that depending on your funding level, and you, hopefully hopefully you can tell us more how this actually works. Is something called AWS ActorWeight, and depending on your funding level, you give startups or lots of credit uh, do like the, the initial fix right they get up to a million dollars in aws credits right there, there are several different plans for startups with, with varying levels of, of credits that they can get to we also like to work through various kinds of accelerator programs because we uh, again in the interest of scale whenever we architect something new at amazon wh whether it's a, a service or a program that, that's facing the customer base we always think about scale. And so when we think about like, how do we reach millions of startups around the world? We realize that we, we can't possibly scale and staff up to, to, to have direct connections to all those startups. So we like to work through accelerators and have those accelerators actually, they know their local markets, they know their customers, they can create and nurture those relationships with, with local startups. And we, we give them the ability to actually make the tough decisions and decide which of those startups would, would be able to receive some AWS credits to, to, to grow. Yeah. How does, how does this work? So basically from, from what I understand is an application process, um, even after you get the funding, right? So you're, you're funded, you're part of an accelerator, you're part of a, um, you're VC funded. There's, then there's an application process that goes through AWS activate, and then you, you get to use those over 12 months or over the lifetime of your startup. How does uh, that work? 
you know, I'm not as familiar as I should be with the various programs, but that in, okay. in general terms, that that's that is the way that it works. We, we we do want to make it easy, but we also want to do our due diligence to make sure that we're we're supporting the the most promising of the startups. Yeah, yeah. You just mentioned the serverless computing startups, and I I, I thought that's really interesting. For the longest time, and I feel like a lot of computing, and people don't really realize that, I feel, it's kind of still working like in the 80s. You log in into your Linux shell, you run a couple of bash scripts, um, and these bash scripts do something, and then you scale it up in the cloud. You, you do this on clones of hundreds of different servers or just on one. It depends on your on what you want to do. And there's some, I'd say, some more complicated stacks on top of this um, that make it easier to manage all this complexity, but kind of it's still the same thing. As you said earlier, SSH is very much 70s, 80s technology. It hasn't really changed much. And we still, the computers are bigger, but it also has the same problems of scalability, of managing it, of server administration. And serverless seems to be the way to just get rid of all this. And it's, it's a new paradigm. But it seems to be incredibly limited um, from what you can do with it. Do you see that changing? There's a lot more developers who figured out how to use serverless properly, and there's also more options on AWS side. Well, it's great that you actually put that point in time, the, the 80s, because I actually remember the 80s and, and running Unix servers way, 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 way back then. Serverless is brand new. I, I think the, the the entire concept of serverless is at, at the earliest, 2015. I, I don't remember the exact year when we, we launched Lambda, but somewhere 2014, 2015. We're, we're, we're still in the very early days. Uh, customers are getting great value from, from serverless. And I, I see a lot of... Well, I, when I first launched Lambda, first wrote that first blog post, this idea, and I, I think the blog post was like, run your code in the cloud. I, I knew for sure that startups would, would look at Lambda really quickly and say, this is great because it, it takes us out of this business of, of running our own infrastructure. And that happened really quickly. They, they saw the model. They, they said, okay, this, is, this will really let us focus on building our business, building our, building our customer base, and, and not doing what we often call the undifferentiated heavy lifting. So startups saw that very quickly and, and jumped on the, the serverless bandwagon. I, I, as soon as I started to see the enterprises going for serverless, I said, okay, th this, is a, this happened far more quickly than I would have expected. And when, when I saw serverless um, in the enterprise and they said, well, th this is so cool because we, we, in a lot of enterprises, they have a lot of servers, most of which are apparently just kind of sitting idle for long stretches of time, just eager to actually do something of, of use. Yeah. So serverless tends to be a, a really great match for these enterprise applications that might go from effectively idle for long stretches to very, very busy for a, a couple of minutes or a couple of hours every day. Yeah, I think it's kind of like S, what S3 did as a local, we had used to have local file systems, right? And we can just combine them and there were like ideas to, 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 to combine them in a server park and S3 did it for the whole internet. I think that's what Lambda or any other serverless approach can do for the whole internet. We, all this, this, this CPU power that we use on the individual instances finally go into one big centrally managed supercomputer, right? That's, that's the global idea of a, of a more intelligent cloud. And I think it has that potential, but you have to redo all the code, right? You have to rethink the, the whole coding needs to be set up from scratch to fit that serverless paradigm. It, it really depends. But what I think I've seen with our customers is that they, they've often already done some work to really separate out the, the business logic from kind of the more infrastructure code. And yeah. for, for them, when, when, they're, when, they're, when they've done that, or if they do that as part of a move to serverless, 
they end up with a really a, a nice clean separation and this ability to have these these nice modules that they can then use in a lot of different situations a little bit more kind of pick and choose than these these last generation monoliths that they they've, they've unfortunately built and need to need to often spend some time untangling do you know if docker runs in lambda is that something you can combine it, it actually does. So there, there's container support on Lambda. So you, you can actually create containers and then uh, basically upload those or reference those in, in Lambda. Yeah, that's so a you, perfect you get, hybrid, hybrid technology, right? right? Because Docker basically gives you the view of an instance, even though you have multiple in, multiple of those containers on one instance, and then you just move it over. That's that's awesome. Exactly. Now, now when we talk about evolution, it, it would be really fascinating to go and go back to the, the beginnings of Lambda, which are still not that long ago and say, okay, we, we supported a, a single runtime language and we, we basically said, okay, it'll, it's all on-demand scaling. Over the last couple of years, we've added support for a whole bunch of different languages, multiple runtimes. We've added something we call provision concurrency so that if you know that you're gonna be using kind of always a certain kind of level of activity of Lambda, you can, you can pre-provision that amount of concurrency so you, you don't have to worry about scaling up so, so quickly. Yeah. Um, we, we continue to add features, add options. And, and again, th this isn't just dreaming up things. This is because we talk to customers and we, we listen to them, learn from them, do our best to meet their needs. Yeah. Talking about the future of the cloud, what do you think is going to happen in the next 30 years? So we have the one side of the of that Silicon Valley who is all about records while singularity. We all become these cyborgs. And we obviously, we have Elon Musk who is already working on the Neuralink model. <laughs> when you think about the cloud, what's going to happen in the next 30 years about the cloud? Will, will it become a sentient being? That's one of the other things that people put <laughs> forward and says, oh, somewhere in there, we're going to see a sentient being coming to 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 talk to us maybe in a couple of years. Wow, let's see. Well, I've got enough science fiction on the bookshelf behind my green screen that that does that does talk about computers becoming sentient, and I, I don't think we're anywhere close to that at, at this point. Um, part part of sentience, if you really if we really want to go abstract in sci-fi, is is effectively self awareness. And I, I read I read some article a week or two ago about like how, how did we how did our consciousness emerge and Consciousness, apparently, there was a nice logical argument that said, well, consciousness is just the next step from just having kind of self-awareness in terms of like touching and feeling and pain. Well, consciousness is just really being able to do that in, inside your brain, which it kind of made sense to me. It wasn't a, a full explanation, but but this made me think of things like a, a system that uses, for example, um, CloudWatch metrics. Well, CloudWatch metrics are that kind of sensory system inside of your your cloud infrastructure and you could think of well if your cpu load is getting too high or your network traffic is too high that's kind of like feeling pain and effectively you're saying if we feel that pain of being too busy well we auto scale up and if we feel the the let's say the the pleasure of like idle instances well we kind of scale down so maybe is that like a, a nervous system and some autonomous responses maybe sort of maybe really primitive way to think about that yeah it seems a lot like that and when you when you take it a little bit further and you feel like there is this 
I mean, there isn't a lot of decision making that the cloud can do for itself right now. It seems to be predisposed, but so are we, right? We are predisposed, but mostly what's going on in our unconscious is a heart is beating, we're breathing. There's so much stuff going on 24 seven in our unconscious that we have no control over. It's kind of like the cloud, right? We are basically a machine too. We just think we are not because we are, we are flesh and others are metal, but it's the same thing. If you, if you go back to it, for most of our conscious decisions, we have no control why they happened, what's actually being determined by our unconscious. And then there's a tiny sliver that's moved to the conscious part, right? We have no control over what's being moved. Maybe we can we can prime ourselves a little bit, we can take some drugs, but in the end, we are basically slaves of that machine that someone else built. We, we're living in it, but someone else built it. And I think a cloud being has the same problem. Someone else built this thing, they don't have control, they, don't, they can't just redo a new machine. They need humans for this or whatever is building those machines, if it's robots at some point. But they have the same problem. There's this vast amount of unconscious knowledge and maybe subconsciousness will eventually with some self-control happen. We don't have that layer. I think nobody has seen it yet. But we also don't know how we work because there's all these other animals that work like machines, but they seemingly don't have consciousness, depending on how we define it. Exactly. And there's a lot of really interesting analogies that we can draw. I certainly don't have a blog post uh, in, in draft form that says the cloud has now achieved sentience and uh, <laughs> step, step back, we're all that's, in the, that's why I was, <laughs> we're all that's in why I was, well, I wanted to certainly talk. don't have one of those in, in the works. Um, <laughs> we, we don't know where this is going. And interestingly enough, we, we, we think in terms of machine learning and AI, and we I, I suspect that to the casual observer, it's like kind of thinking, well, that that's kind of where we get to. That's, that's where the sentience might come from. But um, Maybe we'll get surprised. On the other hand, as, as we talk about all this ability to, to, to be somewhat self-aware and to, to respond to events in the environment, well, we, we do have this idea of event-driven programming. It, it's kind of more digital than, than analog, but, do, but you sometimes do get some emergent behavior. And that when, when you take multiple very complex systems and connect them together, there are delays, timeouts, resonances, buffer overflows, kind of things that the, each of the components are wonderful on their own. You put them together, it's like, hmm, they, they actually surprised us a bit when we put them all together. Now, now was the, the organism as a whole, did it have self-awareness to say, oh, now I'm this big complicated thing and I, I'm, I'm now greater than the sum of my parts? Definitely not, but, but it exhibits behavior as if, as if it did. Yeah, Mark. Burgess was, was telling me that and he's a physicist. Um, he, he wrote the CF engine. And, um, but he said, you know, the cloud is really where we're going to see this quantum effects. Um, and quantum effects, not necessarily if in, the, in the way physicists think of it, but you have those, those unpredictable phenomenons that if you, that things can talk to each other the way you didn't intend them to ever talk to each other. It's kind of like the, the, that famous part of the of quantum mechanics that one particle on the one end of the universe can determine the fate of the other particle on the other end of the universe, which shouldn't be impossible because it's a real-time thing. And he said, we will see effects like this most likely in the cloud. If these things work together and something emergent is coming out of it that seems like it cannot happen, but it does happen and it's somewhat predictable. Not, not perfectly predictable, but somewhat predictable. And he felt like this, if anything, will be the the seed of this, the super AI of this emergence, 
it will be somewhere in a data center. This is the place where it will happen. So he, he said, you can bet your money on it that it will happen when and how. Nobody knows. Well, if you would know, then we would have it already. Um, but it's, it's going to be in one of those superstructures, one of those cloud superstructures. Sure. Well, the, the compute power is certainly there. It, it, it is very, very safely in, in well-intentioned human hands right now for control. Yeah. But I'll, I'll certainly keep my eyes peeled for any, any emerging sentient behavior. <laughs> yeah, I worry a little bit because I think about it. We, we have like, I don't know, 20, maybe 100 data centers all in Virginia, right? So uh, let's assume we, we, we have a few thousand there in a couple of years, right? Um, all in the same spot, and suddenly there is an emergent behavior, and they all go dark. That will be a big problem, right? So the internet will go dark for that part of the internet. Obviously, you have more availability zones, and so have others. But it's a massive part of internet capacity. It will just go offline, and nobody really knows how to fix it because it's something that was emergent, right? It's not like, okay, we found the bug, we change it. No, it's something that that had a decision that it made that we couldn't control, or maybe we don't even want to control. Yeah, we're, we're, we're firmly in the realm of, of advanced sci-fi speculation. Um, interestingly enough, though, we, we, we do run this exercise within our data centers and within our regions we call game days. And a, a game day basically says, let's make sure that we do understand how these systems behave in, in, at, at the edges of, the, of their um, design limits. So with, with the game day, what we'll do is we will we'll identify some part of the infrastructure and say, we, we believe we've I architected the system so that if this part of the infrastructure were to slow down or to fail or to be unplugged, that the hypothesis is the rest of the system should just continue to run. So we, we form this hypothesis, we put monitoring into place, and then we actually go and we perform that, that action. We, we do unplug the server, we, we introduce errors into the APIs so that they, they're slow or they return failing results, and we we, under control conditions, we say, what if we break this? Or what if this is really slow? Or what if this doesn't happen? And we, we try to get this understanding of, ha have we actually built this level of, of um, durability and availability and resilience into the systems? Yeah, that's, that's an, a wonderful way to be prepared for a disaster. If, and David Urban told me this, if we have access in 2040, that's certainly is based on Moore's law, but it's still speculation. We have access to the, 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 the raw computing power of a million brains for $1,000. So it doesn't mean it's a sentient thing or, or it's anything special happens, but it's just a raw computing power. When, when, when you look at this, do you know how many servers Amazon manages, like hardware servers, right? Not the virtual instances, or maybe you know that number too. Do you have any idea? Is it in the millions? Is it in the billions? How many individual like, mm. like things in a rack actually exist? Uh, I, I don't know that within three orders of magnitude. I, I honestly yeah. don't. I'm, I'm sure it's it's a mind blowing number, and it, it's not something that I, I think we've ever shared. And you you, yeah. you can certainly look at the the growth of AWS over the years, and and look at the growth rates, and probably not do any computation on that that would be meaningful. But you you can see the fact that as AWS grows thirty forty. Some, sometimes 50% per year. You, you can imagine the compounding effect of that over, over the last 15 years. Yeah. That's one, one, one way you might be able to get in the right ballpark there. Yeah, I wanted to run my own numbers. That's why I wanted to pick your brain. If we do this in 2040, what, what kind of virtual instance is this, right? So will we need to pack it to, to an EC2 or whatever instance that has a certain computing power that we know our brain has, or we have a, a core idea of what it, what it can compute. We don't know how yeah. it works or how efficient it is. 
And then we can just see how, will it be a million? Will it be a hundred thousand? Makes a big difference, right? But it's on, on each instance, literally you could run an AI that does crunch some numbers and gives you some guidance how to solve this problem. This is, I think, the, the biggest um, um, computing um, resource that is being added to AWS is really AI algorithms. So to make them, it's very expensive, but once you have them, they're not very computational intensive. Yeah. So there are customers that fairly routinely run compute jobs, that things like uh, various kind of analytic jobs or, or simulation jobs that are well above 100,000 cores simultaneously. That, that's, that we, we've, we've passed that several years ago as, as kind of a, an upper, wow. not an upper bound, but kind of a reasonable thing for customers to do. So if customers need to launch multi hundred thousand core jobs, that they sometimes they'll just go ahead and and after they've they've kind of um, they've got their they're ready to go as far as technically and they've given us a little bit of a heads up that we can make sure their their account is prepared to give them that that level of access. There are customers that run jobs of, of that scale effectively routinely. At, at and by cores, core, that's a like GPU on hardware level, or that's just a virtual core. Um, so it it depends on the hardware that you're running on, but uh, we we generally. If we're running on a machine that's hyper-threaded, we, we, the unit is a, a vCPU, a virtual CPU. So you'll, you'll basically get, um, you'll get two vCPUs per, per physical core. If you're on something like a, a Graviton 2 processor, it, one, one core is effectively one, one physical core. One vCPU is one physical core on, yeah. on the machine. Well, that's massive. Do, do you have any idea how much the bill would be for renting 100,000 for an hour, 100,000 cores? Um, you know, I have to admit that I've written blog posts that had those numbers in them, but it, it gets lower and lower over time because the, yeah. the, the effective cost for um, a core hour continues to go down. And we, we have this model called the, the spot instance model where, where instead of paying the list price, the, the price is basically determined by, by availability. So you, you can save up to 90% off the list price by, by using spot spot cores or spot instances. Yeah. Well, when we just assumed 10 cents, I was just doing this in my head. So it'd be somewhere around $10,000 for an hour, yeah. more or less. Ten, right? 10 cents is kind of, uh, may, might even be a little bit high. There, there okay. are lots of instances that give you far below 10 cents per core per hour. Yeah. Well, and we're definitely going to, we, yeah, we're definitely going to get there in, in, well, it really depends what, what CPU speed we associate with, with the brain, right? It's probably, it's a little more than the current core. But I mean, 20 years from now, we're going to see a lot of doubling. I don't know how many doublings yeah. Oh yeah. Is. The I mean, the, the question might even be like, is compute power the actual limiting factor or is this a, a memory bound problem? Or is it, is it algorithms, yeah. right? It ultimately is probably the, the availability of all this compute power and all this memory. You, you need code to actually take advantage of it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you definitely need this, this serverless approach to it. It won't work with uh, with SSH. <laughs> so I, I think I already know that. I mean, maybe someone comes up with another layer like VMware was, and maybe that's that's what's going to gonna happen. But I can see this, and that's for me quite stunning, when we, when we see laptops who seem to have been lacking behind Moore's Law for quite some time. I'm looking at MacBooks especially. And they got warmer and hotter, but they got also slower. Well, obviously the software got more, more, more resource intensive over the years. And then so, suddenly Apple came up with the M1 now, and suddenly I think Moore's Law is back. It's like ten times faster than the, than the comparable price Intel chip uh, just from a year ago. And 
you feel like whoa Moore's law you can't do much about it like it's it's almost like a natural law and it's if you give up on it for a while because you think oh we can't go smaller in nanotechnology it doesn't really work but then we come up with virtual cores and, and multi-cores and it suddenly is back with the vengeance right and the interesting thing is we, we've kind of heard of like the end of Moore's law in, in my career I've probably heard that 10 times in the last 20 years that we're we're now at the the finest possible resolution on our chips and we're at whatever number of of, uh, of nanometers, we can now make make the lines on the chips. And I, I just saw last week that that I think IBM is now working with two nanometer chips. And the, the state of the art that was before that was uh, was I think seven or ten nanometers. So there's there's yeah. there's always a, a new step. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a positive note. It's good for you guys, right? So where do you feel is the biggest challenge for AWS the next <laughs> twenty years? I hope you're going to stay on for quite some time. <laughs> wow. Let's see. For 20 years, I'll be 80 plus years old at that point. You so can make it happen. Yeah, you're, I'll still can, be, yeah. I, I have to try really hard to stay either. relevant. <laughs> I, I, have to, I, I really enjoy what I do. I have to say that. I, it, it's been just kind of the, the privilege of a lifetime to be able to be present at the birth of this industry and to be able to write all this content and to share it with an audience and to yeah. see people pick it up and to have it not, not just change their business. That, that's kind of neat. But to the amount of positive energy, good karma generated by, by people reading something I've done and learning from it, putting it to use, maybe improving improving their job, getting a better job, making their life a bit better, making their family's life a bit better. It's like, that's kind of a cool and amazing thing to be able to do. Um, where are we at in 20 years? Impossible to predict, just impossible to predict where we're gonna be. Um, I'll I'll keep on doing this as, as long as I think I'm relevant and, and useful. Yeah. Well, I think there's going to be another amazing success story coming there. Uh, I think this cloud is way, way further to run. Um, the only, you're still only seeing a very small part of that footprint. You guys are at 50 billion a year now, I think. So that, that's about right. I, I, you know, I, it sounds odd, but I, I tend not to commit the specific numbers to memory because they change every quarter. And yeah. if I, if I, Remember one of them, then I'm just going to be stuck on a on a, a previous quarter. So I, I tend not to actually have those just at hand to be able to recite them. But it, it's it's certainly been exciting. And one one thing I remember is I, I remember being in my 20s, re really early in my tech career, and just realizing it was going to be a really fun, really exciting career. But also seeing people that were they seemed really old at the time. They were probably like 45 or 50 and thinking, man, those, those folks are kind of way, way past their prime. And they're, they're kind of just, they're, they're stuck in the past or they're stuck in a generation of technology. And I, I think back to being, oh, I might not have, I've barely been 21, but seeing these folks and saying, you know, I'm never going to get stuck on some generation of technology. I, I'm always going to be tracking the, the future, tracking the new technology, doing my best to understand it and to, to, to be able to, to be competent with it. And now I think I'm probably at least a decade older than these people that seemed really, really old at the time. And I hopefully I've been able to, to do that and just stay, stay educated and stay relevant. Yeah, well, you, you, you definitely are living it. You're <laughs> doing it right now. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate that. Thanks for sharing all your insights. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Take it easy, Jeff. Talk soon. Will do. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.